Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about... Thomas Henry Huxley, episode 3 of reading through the Wikipedia article on this person. <clears throat> so just reading through, I picked up uh, that a key background player in the development of science was um, a Huxley uh, associated with Darwin. So there's the story of Darwin's, you know, here's the theories I've got in my book, here's the minimum number of scientists I have to go up. It's sort of like having a, a football team without a, a manager or coaches or any any support staff or the bus driver. Here are the minimum people, people, and this is what people pay to go and see. They pay to go and see the great sort of uh, Hawking and uh, Darwin and Newton and uh, Pythagoras. Uh, and indeed there are these fantastic background people uh, and in the uh, creation of science because um, you have this idea uh, of the naive science person they say look scientists have always been and they basically lie to the kiddies and then the kiddies get confused when you say oh well and then science was created such and such a date and they go hang on you know wasn't Newton a scientist uh, in fact, uh, no one before Faraday was a scientist. He was Faraday was the very first scientist. So he uh, had his heyday in um, oh around 1830, around that time, where he was super famous, or not famous, but you know they decided to invent the word scientist from the British Association for the Advancement of Science. They invented scientists, but still, a scientist was a not a profession. It was a a thing. But it wasn't a profession, and uh, this uh, Thomas Huxley, Henry Huxley, turns out to be the critical, the critical catalyst to convert uh, from a scientist to someone with social force. Now, uh, what has happened is that um, uh, as the demands of science have continued, the ability for scientists to be a social force has diminished, as they are required to be more precise and less. Uh, interactory, so their interaction is with conflict uh, with their, um, uh, I suppose, scientific candor. It's sort of to to push, pull away from each other. But he is definitely the big creator here, and uh, he had a big thing to do. Now, um, he actually created uh, science as a profession, uh, a scientist. So they created the scientists first. And then they said, you are a profession, you are welcome to society. There was a, a sort of a waiting room before the impact of Darwin and uh, basically punching people back into the, um, to the ground. Simply because uh, I would say that in the, the darkest, most quiet moment of the soul, uh, if you were a Christian putting this forward, you either be completely stuffed in the head, or you have this inkling that perhaps I've got my, my I, I, perhaps I've got my wealth, my power by cheating and stealing. And it, it requires sort of like a, a policeman to come back. And so he said, he's Darwin's bulldog. Um, the idea is that a bulldog was a university policeman who actually uh, got people into order and pushed pushed them in. It's not more, not a, a physical. Dog goes yep yep yep. It's the idea of um, that position to set things right, 
So this is, is really important. Now, uh, Richard Owen is someone I just naturally hate. I've really forgotten about him. Uh, and he was uh, the person who basically had the conclusion of God and looked, looked, went looking for God in the data. So let's uh, read from where I left off. Uh, from 1860 to 63, Huxley developed his ideas, presenting them in lectures to working men, students, and general public. Now, this is the critical theme that um, that um, both Mendeleev and people have begun educating the general public. Now, Pythagoras uh, tried to do that, but there was just too much kickback, too many variables. Uh, it was not set. People would run away, so he had to create his own society. And um, uh, up to this stage, um, you had... Um, uh, Bacon discuss a new civilization based on science, and this is still this two two level level thing in terms of um, uh, he had the sort of American Constitution if you if you really look at it, but uh, America is Francis Bacon's so Francis Bacon's creation he wrote down the uh, principles, basically the principles, the Declaration of Independence and the uh, American Constitution is basically a, a development of um, uh, Francis Bacon's ideas. And in a, in a sense, there's this, this, I don't know, uh, tension between what a society is based on good principles which is your science society, the, um, uh, what is the uh, book that Francis Bacon wrote in New Atlantis? The description of a society based where everyone that goes up and says, wakes up in the morning and goes, gee, science is good, I'm going to be rational today, and how are you? It's sort of like a, the Truman Show of absolute clinical, nice rationalism. Then you've got the real society where people do game theory, plot, trick. Um, uh, they uh, essentially do a fraud, and if it lasts, a fraud lasts a generation. It's it's a family trait. So you have a fraud in one generation. The next generation is, I came into wealth. I, I am wealthy. It, it becomes from an action to a property. Yeah, I suppose that there's a certain certain sense a sense of property in that. In that world, science is a real problem. You don't want someone going around saying, what? "How do you get that wealth?" If let me do the books forensically and see what. No, no, and suddenly you're pushed aside. So, in the real world, scientists are a problem, and you push them aside, and their role is more. Oh, you can clean the pool. You can move the energy meter. You can polish my car. You can fuel my engine. You can save my life, but fuck off, fundamentally. And there's this, this real tension here. And so, uh, uh, now what's really interesting is that he's, um, Thomas Henry Huxley, his entry into this science world was not via the, the shopping centre entrance. It wasn't by the official car park entrance, the valet service to get in. That is through... Oxford University, great. He was a self-taught person, and 
in a certain sense, this, these podcasts that you're listening is me self-teaching, saying, hang on, I think I, I have the luxury, I'll go and do this, I'll check that, I'll read all the scientists up again and pick, pick the pattern. You don't get a luxury to do that if you're given a course. This self-taught thing is actually beginning to inject scientists back into society such that they can stand up and uh, do, because they're not connected to an institution, you can't kill them. You can only, the great thing about a scientist institu uh, to a institution is that you might be able to get the scientists, but you can sure as hell make it terrible for the institution so the institution can destroy the scientists. This is good. However, if you start educating self-taught people, the game is over, as far as I can see. Now, uh, continuing this, he has, uh, taking from Huxley, he's just had the um, self-taught, with the self-taught person, he's got no, um, nothing, no institutional bonding to have, have a look at this. He has this theory that he finds gradualism a bit hard to, part of evolution gradualism, uh, which is things gradually change. If you look at one year to a hundred years, you, you just look at it and you say, oh, that horse has just changed a little bit. Um, as this is compared to the French belief of uh, cataclysmic change, that is, uh, God, as a director, comes down to oh, fuck's sake, you, you, go extinct. Um, oh, we've got a gap here, I'll create that and create that, and, and these new forms go. So there was a sort of religious belief in sort of um, uh, success, rather than looking at this the geological record, the first conclusion was creation in one hit is off, well why not successive creation. Now, now Huxley had this, he had nothing to back him, he had the only choice of let's make the best decision to go ahead, I choose that. So once you actually train self-sufficient, self-trained scientists, perhaps we actually need to create institution-free freelance scientists. That is, that if you can publish, we can pay the scientists directly. And that way, the scientists will therefore not respect an institution, they will respect best science, because if they produce poor quality science, there, as, as a freelancer, they will disappear. So he's pretty much the same thing. He's gone in, seen the, these horse hooves, uh, five toes, three toes, two toes. And at the moment, horses walk on one toe. They always have a toe. It's pretty hard to believe. Giraffes walk on tippy toes. They have normal length legs and a very long toe. That's, that is a giraffe. Isn't that absolutely amazing? amazing thing. Um, so um, this is how this uh, uh, came along. And so we're just walking along here. And now we've got the vestiges. Uh, what happened is that the um, uh, vestiges was put up basically Darwin's ideas and the, the set of ideas that wasn't there and it came under flack and everyone could watch it. And perhaps the way that we're treating scientists now I think what might be happening is that we are watching people destroy scientists. I think the scientists are sitting back and saying, that's a bit like myself, okay, well, let's produce this area. I'm producing software, 
podcasts, perhaps we might be able to fight back. Very similar situation to the Darwin situation where Darwin's sitting there and has watched vestiges being destroyed and he's a bit shell-shocked and sitting in the trenches waiting ready to go and then someone says he's about to walk over and claim victory and he I'm here already. You know, he's, it, Carl, Darwin's got the friends. The interesting thing about uh, Huxley, this Thomas Huxley, he's very well connected. I think, because I'm a man, he looks like a man, and blah, I'm not quite, quite. But I, I, th I would say, people would say, he's a good looker. So I think he was a good looker, good speaker, charismatic, uh, and self-made. Uh, self Important about this variation is that if you look, look down these scientists, mum died, mum has an effect, that the mum scientist thing is a really important factor, uh, whether whether it works to propel them or works to make, puts energy in them to 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 go and fight. Like say in Newton's case, uh, Newton was rejected by his mother. Newton's Newton's mum, the dad died. That's a good-looking dude. Oh, I can sort my son out. He's gone out of the equation. Don't worry about him, he's a piece of shit. Then, of course, Newton comes up with, let me work this out, am I a piece of shit? So I'll bash, when a student, um, he's just trucking along, a student says, your mum doesn't like you. He says, that has really upset me, and he beats the stuffing out of this person, and then says, I'm not content, um, beating you, I'm going to beat you intellectually. So this entire thing is like, you can imagine his brain as a, as a pack of puppies behind him going like this and it goes and he, while well, he's focusing on the, the emotional torment, his, his brain is allowed to go forward. I sort of, sort of understand it. Huxley is very interesting. Let's read it. Here, also in 19... Uh, 1862, a series of talks of working men was printed lecture by lecture as pamphlets, later bound up into a little green book. The first copies went on sale in December. Other lectures grew into Huxley's most famous work, Evidence of Man's Place in Nature, 1863, where he addressed the key issues long before Darwin published The Descent, Descent of Man. Although Darwin did not publish his Descent of Man until 1871, the general debate on the topic had started years before. There were even precursor debates in the 18th century between uh, uh, Monboddo and Buffoon. Uh, Buffoon was the French person. Isn't that beautiful? You're Buffoon. Um, Darwin had dropped a hint when, in the conclusion of The Origin, he wrote, quote, In the distant future, light will be thrown on the origin of man in his history. Not so distant as it turned out. The key event had already occurred in 1857, when Richard Owen presented to the Leanne Society his theory that man was marked off from all other animals by possessing features of the brain peculiar to the genus Homo. So this is, this is the important thing. Having reached this opinion, Owen separated man from the other mammals uh, in a subclass of its own. No other biologist held such an extreme view. Darwin's reacted man as a distinct from a chimpanzee, an ape um, as an ape from a platypus. I cannot swallow that. The platypus is a key 
uh, point in Darwin's history, I'll stop that for a little while. Neither Huxley, who was able to demonstrate that Owen's idea was, uh, neither uh, neither could Huxley, who was able to demonstrate Owen's idea was completely wrong. Now, the the, the who got completely blasted away? Well, Australia had creationists descend on Australia and hunt platypuses and actually go and blast the stuffing out of it. So some creationists were shooting platypuses to prove evolution, you know, the evolution was incorrect. Other people were shooting platypuses to try and blow them away so that you can actually get them at the point where they have eggs. And eventually they did, did, did shoot a platypus. And so it was just, Australia just quiet and a platypus was the quintessential go explain what God was doing with the platypus. Look at that platypus, it's got a beak, it can't see, it's fur, it's, it's, it's got one hole, it lay, lays eggs, its eggs uh, are the eggs of birds or, or reptiles, what, what is going on, uh, I can't remember what's going on. So they had to, to find the, cat, the platypus eggs and the poor little platypus going around there, really cute little animal, and I can't say, it would, most of them would fit on a large dinner plate. They're, they're that cute and small and just able to surface and ripple and dive. Most beautiful thing. Okay, the subject was raised in 1860 BA Oxford meeting. This is the British Association for the Advancement of Science. So this is it saying, so it started off with, if we have a society without science, we're, we're stuffed. We have to create a scientist. Having created a scientist, it was just a doll on the shelf. We've got to embed a scientist into society. He's now done as someone who can speak and it's respected. They still do in, in thing, but what's happened now is that to control scientists, we have put them in institutions and if we want to, if a scientist says something wrong, the funding gets cut to the institution. The tea lady, the, the welder, the pickup type person, they're the first to go. And uh, the scientist who's basically a compassionate, connected person can be silenced. You can control it. If you put a scientist in an institution, you can, you can lock them up. In fact, a number of demonstrations were held. Um, uh, so... Uh, and uh, Owen uh, promised a later demonstration of the facts. In fact, a number of demonstrations were held in London and the provinces. In 1862, at Cambridge meeting of the B.A. Huxley's friend, William Flower, gave a public dissection to show the same structures, the posterior horn and electrical ventricle of the hippopotamus minor, were indeed present in apes. Uh, the debate was wildly publicised and parodied as, so uh, I have... They're cutting up animals. So this parallel dissection idea of an ape, and the thing of Vesuvius is coming forward, is parodied as the great hippopotamus, hippoclampus question. Ah, now this hippoclampus is the horse part. It's interesting. It's seen as one of Owen's uh, greatest blunder, revealing Huxley as not only dangerous in debate, but a better atomist. Owen considered that there was something that he could, that could be called a hippoclampus, in minor apes, but stated uh, that it was much less developed uh, and 
Uh, such a presence did not detract from the overall distinction um, of simple brain size. Huxley's idea on the topics was summed up in January. So hippocampus. Is that right? What are we talking about? Oh, so, so they're looking at the hippocampus. This is not a hippopotamus. <laughs> hippocampus, uh, which is still to do with the horses, I believe. Um, I can see that there was something that could be... Okay, Huxley's idea on the topic was summed up in January 1861 in the first issue, new series of his own journal, The Natural History Review. Isn't that fucking good? Just stop me, I'm going to produce my own journal. The most violent scientific paper he had ever composed. This paper was reprinted in 1865 as Chapter 2 of Man's Place in Nature, with addendum giving his account of Owen Huxley's controversy about the ape brain. In his collected essays, the addendum was removed. Uh, the extended argument on the ape brain, partly in debate and partly in print, backed by dissections and demonstration, was the landmark of Huxley's career was highly important in asserting his dominance of comparative anatomy. In the long run, more influential in establishing evolution amongst biologists than was the debate of Wilberforce. It also marked the start of Owen's decline in the esteem of his fellow biologists. Uh, Richard Owen is someone I'm going to have to have to have to have to do. Can you do it? And so, your question is that really. Uh, you can be locked out by inst you know, institutional warfare, can't, institution on institution can't win, but essentially your, your lone soldier, scientist, can, can, can win. Um, the following was written by Huxley to Ralston before the BA meeting in 1861. Here's a quote. My dear Ralston, the obstinate uh, reiteration of erroneous assertions can only be nullified by persistent appeal to facts. And I greatly regret that my engagements do not permit me to present to the British Association in order to assist personally of what I believe will be the seventh public demonstration during the past 12 months of the uh, untruthful of the three assertions that the posterior lobe of the cerebellum and the posterior cornu of the lateral ventricle of the hippoclimus malus are peculiar to man and do not exist in apes. I shall be obliged if you read this letter to the section. Yours faithfully, um, Thomas Huxley. Um, during those years, uh, there was also work on human fossil anatomy and anthropology. In 1862, he examined the Neanderthal skull cap, uh, which had been discovered in 1857. It was the first pre-Sapiens discovery of a fossil man, and it was immediately clear to him that the brain case was surprisingly large, perhaps less productive as his work on physical anthropology, a topic which fascinated the Victorians. Huxley classified the human races into nine categories and discussed them under four headings, asteroid, negroid, xenocrotic, mongoloid types. And of course, the... the upshot of this is that no sooner did the scientists win than within 30 years of Darwin's death, I don't know when Darwin died, uh, we had concentration camps. Isn't it amazing? Such classification depended mainly on the appearance of anatomical characteristics. Natural selection. Huxley was certainly not uh, slavish in his dealing with Darwin, as shown in every biography they had quite different and rather complementary characters. 
important also, Darwin was a field naturalist, but Huxley was an anatomist, so there was a difference in their experience of nature. Lastly, Darwin's view on science were different from Huxley's views. For Darwin, natural selection was the best way to explain evolution because it explained a huge range of natural history facts and observation. It solved problems. Huxley, on the other hand, was an empiricist. So Darwin's a rationalist, like Kant and Einstein, and empiricists are probably like Billiken, um, possibly Planck. Um, Huxley, on the other hand, was um, only trusted what he could see, and some things are not easily seen. With this in mind, one can appreciate the debate between them. Darwin, writing his letters to Huxley, never going quite so far as to say he thought Darwin was right. Isn't that an amazing story? Huxley's reservations on natural selection were of the type, quote, until selection and breeding can be seen to give rise to varieties which are infertile with each other, natural selection cannot be proved. Huxley's proposition, uh, position on selection was agnostic. And he was a person who said the agnostic view is, and I think really at the end of the day, he, when if I had to lay my money on it, God doesn't exist. But my my personal life is the agnostic view that I want to do good, but I can only do good rationally through rational facts and measurement. Okay, uh, Huxley's position was agnostic, yet he gave no credence to any other theory. Despite this concern about evidence, Huxley saw that if evolution came about through variation, reproduction and selection, then other things could also be subject to the same pressures. This included ideas because they were uh, invented, imitated and selected by humans. Isn't that the, uh, the uh, selfish gene? This is religion. The struggle for existence holds as much in the intellectual as in the physical world, a theories of species of thinking. Uh, and its right to exist in coexistence with the power of resisting extinction by its rivals. This same idea as the meme theory put by Richard Dawkins in 1976. Darwin's part in the discussion came mostly in letters and is his, as was his want, along the lines, quote, the empirical evidence you call for is both impossible in practical terms and in any event unnecessary. It's the same thing as asking to see every step of the transformation or the splitting of one species into another. My way, uh, so many issues are clarified and problems solved. No other theory does so ne nearly so well. And so this is rationalism, empiricism. And basically, um, you really have to go between the two. The interesting thing is that Einstein um, had a rationalist envelope to overtake the empiricist thing. He ran th you know, thousands of thought experiments, experiments and winnowed them down in his own voice. He let experiments in his mind rain down and saw which one would possibly flower. He, he was able to eliminate. He was running a natural selection himself. Uh, Huxley's observation, as Hillary uh, Cronin so aptly remarked, was contagious. It spread itself for years among all kinds of data of Darwinism. One reason for this doubt was that comparative anatomy could address the question of descent, but not the question of mechanism. Uh, and um, this shows you um, the uh, partisan, a scientific, institutionalized view of 
I have an institution, I might institute it's going to be, it's actually really interesting because the institutions are organisms and people move into an organism and if the organism requires you for the survival of the organism to be irrational and unscientific, it goes ahead. And essentially you can actually, as an unscientific institution, always beat a scientific institution unless that scientific institution that has agents outside, as Huxley is, Paul Bearer. Huxley was Paul Bearer at the funeral of Charles Darwin in 1882. Isn't that absolutely a thing? And 50 years time, 32, you have the rise of Nazism, the X Club. In November, um, 1864, Huxley succeeded in launching the Darwin Club, the X Club, composed of like-minded people working to advance the cause of science. Not surprisingly, the club consisted of the, most of his closest friends. There were nine members who declined at first meeting that should be, uh, that um, decided at their first meeting there should be no more. The members were Huxley, John Tyndall, Hooker, Lubbock, Banker, Biologist, Edward Darwin, uh, uh, Herbert Spencer, Social Philosopher, Sub-Editor of the Economist, William Spottywood, a mathematician and the Queen's Printer, Thomas Hurst, Professor of Physics, Edward Franklin, Professor of Chemistry, George Bass, Zoologist, um, uh, and these are all, all friends. I don't know if you know the X Club, very similar to the Glenbrook Advanced Concept Institute. All except Spencer were fellows of the Royal Society. Tyndall was a particularly close friend. For many years they met regularly and discussed the issues of the day. On more than one occasion, Huxley joined Tyndall in the latter's trips to the Alps and helped with his investigation of glaciology. Unfortunately, Tyndall was to die, wasn't he? There were also some quite significant ex-club satellites, which, uh, such as William Flowers, George Walson, uh, and Liberal clergyman Arthur Stanley and Dean of Westminster guests such as Charles Gowan, Herman von Helmholtz were entertained from time to time. So he's created a club and people join the club. Uh, we are entertaining, I think, um, or next, I don't know whether it's Tuesday how it goes. Um, they would dine early on the first Thursdays at a hotel, planning what to do. High on the agenda was to change the way the Royal Society Council did business. It is no coincidence that the council met later that same evening. First item mix was to get the Copley Medal for Darwin, which they managed after quite a struggle. Isn't that right? So this is a sort of a similar, a similar thing to, to this. Next step was to require a journal to spread their ideas. This was uh, the Weekly Reader, uh, which they brought revamped and redirected. Isn't that beautiful? Huxley had already become part owner of the Natural History Review, bolstered by the support of Lobdock, Ralston, Busk and Carpenter, ex-clubbers and satellites. The journey which switched um, to pro-Darwin lines and relaunched in 1861. After a stream of good articles, the NHR failed after four years, but it had helped a critical time to the establishment of evolution. The reader also failed despite its broader appeal, which started and included art and literature as well as science. The periodical market was quite crowded at the time, but most probably the critical factor was Huxley's time. He simply was overcommitted. He could not afford to hire full-time editors. He occurred to, uh, this occurred to him often in his life. Huxley took on too many ventures and was not astute as Darwin is getting others to do work for him. 
However, the experience gained with the reader was put to good use when the X Club was put their weight behind the founding of nature. Fuck. Gee, that's great. This time, no mistakes were made. Above all, there was permanent editor, not, not full-time, Norman Lockyer, who served until 1919, a year before his death. In 1925, to celebrate the centenary, Nature issued a supplement devoted to Huxley. Isn't that great? So Nat Nature, the top magazine, is started by Huxley. At the peak of the X-Club's influence uh, was 1873 to 1885, over 10 years, as Hooker, Spotswood, Huxley were presidents of the Royal Society in succession. Spencer resigned in 1889 after a dispute with Huxley over the state support for science. In 1892, it was just an excuse for the surviving members to meet. Hooker died in 1911. Lovelock, now Lord Avery, was the last surviving member. Huxley was also active in the middle of the Metaphysical Society, which ran from 1869 to 1880. It was formed around the nucleus of clergy and expanded to include all kinds of opinions. Tyndall and Huxley later joined the club, founded by Dr. Johnson, when they could be sure that Owen would not turn up. Uh, it's interesting that, that Huxley had a club to include his dearest enemy, Owen. I just loved it. This is the most enjoyable read. When Huxley himself was young, there was virtually no degrees in British universities in the biological sciences and few courses. Most biologists of his day were either self-taught or took medical degrees. When he retired, there was established chairs in biological disciplines in most universities and the board consensus on curricula to be followed. Huxley was the single most influential person in its transformation. Wow. Schools of Mines and Zoology. Early in 1870, the Royal School of Mines moved its new headquarters in South Kensington. Ultimately, it would become one of the constituent parts of the Imperial College of London. The move gave Huxley the chance to give more prominence to laboratory work in biological teaching, an idea suggested by the practice of German universities. In the main, the method was based on the use of carefully chosen types and depended on the dissection of anatomy supplemented by microscopy, museum specimens and some elementary physiology at the hands of Foster. A typical day would start with Huxley lecturing at 9am, followed by a program of laboratory work supervised by his demonstrators. Huxley's demonstrators were picked men, or men, all became leaders in biology in Britain in later life spreading Huxley's idea as well as their own. Michael Foster became Professor of Physiology in Cambridge. Lancaster became a Jodrell Professor in Zoology at University College London, Professor of Comparative Anatomy at Oxford, and Director of the Natural History Museum. Vines became Professor of Botany at Cambridge, um, became Hooker's successor at Kew. T.J. Jeffer Packer became Professor of Zoology and Comparative Anatomy at the University College, uh, and... William Rutherford became Professor of uh, Physiology at Edinburgh. William, of course, it's all, all incestuous, isn't it? And uh, so this is true. Like, it, my company go went down, and it was all universal. Oh, we'll have a professorship for you. And you know, and you sort of now know, look back, thank goodness I didn't take it because it's such a dirge. Uh, Conservator of Hunterian Museum, and THH assistants in, and in many dissections became Sir William Fowler, Hunter Professor of Comparative Anatomy and later Director of the Natural History Museum. 
It's a remarkable list of disciples, especially when they're contrasted with Owen, who, in a longer professional life than Huxley, left no disciples at all. No one, no one fact tells so strongly against Owen is, as that he never reared one pupil or follower. Huxley's courses for students were, were so much narrower uh, than the man himself that many were bewildered by the contrast. The teaching of zoology by use uh, of selected animal types has become in for much criticism. Looking back in 1914 to his time as a student, Sir Arthur Chipley said, Darwin's latter work all dealt with living organisms, yet our obsession was with the dead with bodies preserved and cut in the most refined slices. H. E. W. McBride said, Huxley would persist in looking at animals as material structures and not as living, active beings. In a word, he was a necrologist. <laughs> to put it simply, Huxley preferred to teach what he actually had seen with his own eyes. Okay. This largely morphological program of comparative anatomy remained at the core of most biological education for a hundred years until the advent of cell molecular biology. Okay, I'm going to have to go now. Thanks a lot for listening. another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.